Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois. And this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loya, your host. Images matter. That's right, images. Now, by that, we usually refer to visual images, but there's other ways of presenting an image. We can do so by words. But visual images really do matter. In fact, whenever there were opponents of Christianity, one of the first things they went after, not only historically, but even to this day, what they go after are the images. They tear down statues. They deface and desecrate architecture, churches, icons, mosaics, and so on. Why is that? Well, the church has known this for centuries. And on this first Sunday of Lent in the Byzantine liturgical calendar, during what we call this the Trodian, the Trodian refers to the time of Lent, this first Sunday is dedicated to the vindication of holy images. In other words, the final vindication, which happened in the ninth century. It took all that time to overcome the iconoclast heresy that was raging for a couple of centuries. And in fact, it even gets recycled today. Whenever we have any kind of hesitancy, especially in the church, to use images, especially good images, images well done, you know, good art, Whenever we have a hesitancy to do that, whenever we see that destroyed, even civic images, statues of our founding fathers, you know, Lincoln and Washington and so on, whenever we see that destroyed, that's called iconoclasm, which means icon destruction or icon destroyers. Whenever we see that, we're seeing really the denial of what's behind these images, what those images make present. You see, images make what is invisible, visible. That's why even our very bodies, the scripture says that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. We are images and likenesses of God. In other words, we make God present in the physicality of our very body, our body persons. We make the invisible God present. God is visible in his own creation, in nature. This is called the incarnational reality, which is the great mystery, fundamental to our faith, fundamental to life. And so images affirm 
and they help actually make present the presence of God and all of God's truth, the truth of his order of creation, his blueprint for reality. And so if you are against God, you're going to also be against images. Well, finally, in the ninth century in the Eastern churches, the use of images in church were finally vindicated. You see, a lot of people for centuries had the wrong interpretation of Scripture, the wrong idea that if you had images of Christ, the Virgin Mary, angels, the saints, and so on, that you were worshiping them, that you were worshiping false gods, idols. And that is not true. You don't worship images. You reverence them because they make present, actually make present to us that which they represent. In other words, that saint or Christ, they make present to us. We need, we need images. Think of photographs. Think of family albums. Think of the pictures you take and leave on your phones, on your iPhones and so on. Think of images that are everywhere in our lives. Why do we like them? Why do we have them? Why do we even protect them? Why do we hold them dear, many of these images? We keep them on our phone. We keep them in family albums. Keep them in our pocket, our wallet. Why? Because they make present something else, another reality. They make that person present, memories of them, our experiences with them. And so images are important. They really do matter. On the first Sunday of Lent, it is also known not only as the Sunday of Images in the Byzantine Church, but also the Sunday of Orthodoxy, meaning the true faith. Because you see, images establish for us the true faith. In other words, the truth about that one central mystery of the incarnation. The fathers of the church that defended the use of icons and images said that if we deny the use of images of Christ, the Virgin Mary, angels, and saints, then we're denying the faith. We're denying that they didn't exist, that they didn't happen, that above all, we're denying the incarnation, that the second person Trinity did not, in fact, become himself an image of the Father by becoming human while remaining God. We deny that by denying images. And this is why images are so important, so significant. And in Byzantine iconography, the images are painted. In fact, their whole process of creating them is a sacred process. It follows a certain rhythm, a certain, certain step, certain guidelines. And how icons are painted have been set down by, I'll call it the canons or the codes, for centuries. Because of this very fact that when you create an image, a holy image, you are communicating theology, dogma, doctrine, belief. So you can't just do whatever you want. You can't just use your own personal interpretation. There's always a personal element whenever artwork is done. You can't totally take the person, the artist, out of that. But in iconography in particular, the artist really becomes very, very secondary. He, he dies away like St. John the Baptist did so that Christ may reign. The artist, in a sense, steps aside. In fact, he's not really even supposed to sign the icons. He's supposed to basically remain anonymous because the point is the icon and what it's transmitting, the teaching, the reality. So the iconographer has to follow the canons, the different proportions, different colors, the placement, the, the design, the scenery, the content of the icon. Everything is set down and has been for centuries so that there is no personal interpretation which would make a vulnerability for 
may be transmitting an incorrect teaching. So the artist defers to the church, to the teaching, as transmitted through the icons, through the proportion, the colors, the, the figures, etc. Oftentimes, icons are described in various ways, theology in color. It could be, you could even say it's the scripture in color. It's the Bible in line in color. In fact, that's part of how icons developed, when people cannot always read the Bible in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, and so on. They couldn't read it all, many people. They used images to transmit what was in the scripture, what was in the theology, what was in salvation history, the events of the life of Christ, the intercession of the saints, the Blessed Mother. These things were transmitted. These essential teachings were transmitted through the icons. In his classic book, The Lenten Trodion by Callistus Ware and Benedict Ward, he says this about this Sunday. The sense of joy and thanksgiving already evident on the day before, which was Saturday of St. Theodore, a great martyr, is still more apparent on the first Sunday in Lent when we celebrate the triumph of orthodoxy, meaning the triumph of true teaching. On this Sunday, the church commemorates the final ending of the iconoclast controversy and, and the definitive restoration of the holy icons to the churches by the Empress Theodora, acting as regent for her young son, Michael III. I think he was only about eight years old, but he inherited the throne, so the Empress had to act on his behalf. This took on a place on the first Sunday in Lent, on the 11th of March in 843 A.D., there is, however, not only a historical link between the first Sunday and the restoration of the icons, but also, as in the case of St. Theodore, a spiritual affinity. If orthodoxy, meaning the true teaching, triumphed in the epoch of the iconoclast controversy, this was because so many of the faithful were prepared to undergo exile, torture, even death for the sake of the truth. The Feast of the true teaching is above all a celebration in honor of the martyrs and confessors who struggled and suffered for the faith. Hence, its appropriateness for the season of Lent, when we are striving to imitate the martyrs by means of our ascetical self-denial. The fixing of the triumph of orthodoxy on the first Sunday is therefore much more than the result of some chance historical conjunction. Now, there's something else that happens on this Sunday because we're proclaiming and celebrating the true faith and those who died for it, as well as the imagery itself. See, it all goes together. But there's another custom that's done in the Eastern churches. It's not so commonly used today, but it was the reading of the 60 anathemas. In other words, these were people who were mentioned by name, and anathema be upon them. In other words, we sort of anathematize, sort of in a sense condemn them, not that we can judge them as in condemning them to hell. That's God's prerogative. But we anathematize in meaning that what they said was wrong. We do away, we disavow what they said. And what we anathematize are those who went against the true faith and especially against icons. And these anathemas are read in some of the Eastern churches on this Sunday. So we don't, you know, we don't mess around with this stuff. <laughs> as I said, it's not so commonly used. But there's another way of presenting imagery and that is through the liturgical text, the very poetic and colorful language of the liturgy, and especially during the Lenten season, it's very, very rich. I'm just going to be a couple of examples, and we'll look at more when we return. But for example, in the morning prayer for Cheese Fair Sunday, and these are verses that are repeated in other days of prayer in the Lenten time in the Byzantine church, we have colorful images 
through words in their chant or text. For example, we say this, In the days of old, jealous of my royal dignity, the serpent whispered in the ear of Eve his deceitful and cunning plan. And through this fault, I was cut off from the concert of life. The concert of life. Isn't that poetic? Concert, I mean, like, like life is this great, beautiful concert that God intended for us. And it was cut off for us because Eve had the serpent whispering in her ear and she fell for it just as we do when we're tempted and succumb to sin. When we come back, we're going to look at more of the ways of imagery in the church. I'm Father Thomas Leia on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. The Tabor Life Institute, which is dedicated to the formation and education in the theology of the body. To find out more about the Tabor Life Institute, you can go to taborlife.org. That's taborlife.org. Especially if you're interested in conferences and retreats, in particular for youth, young adults, and also for those of you who speak Spanish. That's TaborLife.org. This is Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione of the Archdiocese of San Francisco, and you are listening to Light of the East. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loyo, your host on this very colorful day of images, the first Sunday of Lent in the Byzantine liturgical calendar, which celebrates the vindication of art, of imagery, especially of icons, and also commemorates those who fought and suffered, even died for the sake of the church being able to, in fact, paint icons, to have imagery or mosaics or even statues. In other words, physical images incarnations of the incarnational mystery. God incarnating himself in his own natural existence, his natural world. He became a human person, became an image of the Father physically while remaining God. And so we can, in fact, use imagery to portray Christ, to portray his blessed mother, the saints. We don't worship images. We adore and worship and pray to what they make present. As I mentioned also, we make present the teachings of the church through another way of imagery, and that's through words. You know, words can be very, very colorful. They can paint a picture for us. And this is what we do in the liturgical chant, the texts of the Eastern churches, because we use what's called dogmatic hymns, which are basically poetic expressions or meditations on the teaching, on the theology, or on the event from salvation history, from the scripture. We mentioned one already. Here's another one. O pleasant meadows, O sweetness of paradise, your trees planted by God, let your leaves as so many eyes pour out tears from my nakedness and my estrangement from the glory of God. 
Isn't it amazing? Whenever I hear leaves rustling in the breeze, I always think of this line from, from the liturgy. Let your leaves as so many eyes pour out tears from my nakedness. In other words, we're actually asking the, the trees, the nature to cry for us, to, to repent with and for us. And of course, it's a reference to Adam. See, during Lent, we take on the posture of Adam. Even physically, the priest will stand outside the icon screen, that wall that separates the sanctuary from the nave. And during the services, he stands outside of that, taking on the posture of Adam, as though knocking on the gates of paradise to be let back in after they've been cast out. Adam and Eve were cast out after their sin. And it was in their nakedness that they were innocent because they had that sacramental gaze, that peace of the interior gaze, as St. John Paul II referred to it. But then after sin, their gaze changes. It no longer is sacramental. It no longer has that peace. It has the sort of the turbulence of passion now, where they see each other no longer with that sacramental view that non-lustful view, but now they can no longer trust each other's gaze because now they've made a choice for appropriation, for consumption. See, that's what lust is. Lust is not just in the area of the sexual sphere. Lust is in any area where we look at something and we look at it in terms of appropriation, of dominance, of seeking to take it to ourselves, rather than looking at it in that sacramental way. I call it see pray and pass on. So that's what Adam and Eve were supposed to do when the Lord God told them about that particular tree in the garden that says, you can see that tree, it's attractive, it's beautiful, but don't touch it. But that's not what they did. Instead of seeing it, offering praise to God for this beautiful, wonderful thing, and then moving on to another part of the garden, they stopped and they appropriated. They took the fruit to themselves. See, that's lust. And we can do that with a lot of things. We could do it with a position, for instance, a place that we hold maybe in church or at work or another organization. We can, in a sense, lust after those positions. If they're gone, they're taken away from us or we're relieved of them or we have to lay them aside, we have to move on, whatever, we can become very disturbed. That's actually a form of lust. See, lust is anything that we seek to in a sense, possess, hang on to, cling to, to get our grasp around. Our hand, psychologically and spiritually, and even physically, should always be open, open to receive and open to let something pass through us. We own nothing in this world. The only thing we really own is our sins. Everything else is gift. Everything can be attributed to God's grace, God's benevolence except our sin. That's entirely ours. Let's look at another colorful image of liturgical text. O beloved paradise, no longer shall I savor your view, no longer shall I enjoy your delights, nor your divine splendor. For behold, I am here on earth, naked and rejected for having angered my Creator. Again, that's the posture the voice of Adam that we take on during the Lenten season through the liturgical services and text. And anytime you hear that reference to naked, it's actually a double meaning. It means that we once had a nakedness that was innocent, and then after the fall, it now becomes an obstacle of vulnerability to our innocence. And that's why whenever we hear this reference to nakedness, it means that 
not, not that nakedness in itself is ever an occasion in and of itself for sin, as again, St. John Paul II points out, but rather it's how our bodies are presented and how they are received. In other words, how we see them. It goes not only for our bodies, it goes for anything, as I mentioned before. It could be positions that we hold. It could be titles that we hold. It could be a car, an object, something we see at the store, a type of clothing, Whatever it is, we can look at that and we can look at it either sacramentally or we can look at it in a way that we appropriate it. We want it. We sort of obsess over it and we take it to ourselves, whether illegally or forcefully or deceitfully. That's what is meant. That's the difference. So it's not just nakedness, but it is also anything of the physical world that we look at and we seek to appropriate. That's the term that St. John Paul II used. I think it's a very appropriate one, <laughs> the word appropriate. St. John Paul II did a lot of writing, a lot of teaching on this area of our passions, of our human sexuality, what is right about it, how to see it correctly, and why and how we fall from that, and how to remedy that, how to heal that, how Christ remedied that. I highly recommend you become students of his theology of the body, as well as all of his teaching and writing on things that having to do with things that have to do with family, man, woman, children, motherhood, husbandhood, fatherhood. Lots of deep and brilliant insights from St. John Paul II. And that's why I refer to him often, especially now during the Lenten season, when we're talking about the right way to see. We're trying to regain that sacramental vision. And this is why imagery is so important. See, we are what we eat. It really is true. And not just in relation to food, in relation to what we eat through our eyes, through our ears. It really does form us. Different types of music, different types of talk, different types of language, of use of words, different things that we see. Obvious one, of course, is pornography, but also the sort of soft porn that we see all around us, things that we read, lousy things, trashy things, things that are inconsequential, things that we see on those screens that are always in front of our face, whether on our phone or TV or computer or movies, whatever. Do you realize how much time we spend in front of a screen and how much of that really is beneficial? How much of that serves to help us become the best or better version of ourselves? Some of it does. That's actually, that's what it's meant for. You know, I often marvel that God gave us the smarts to create these magnificent vehicles, such as computers and television and movies and so on. These are magnificent vehicles to convey the truth, to draw us and immerse us into the truth, especially through highly visual means. Yet these things get corrupted and we get sucked into them. And we spend so much time looking at something that really is worthless, it doesn't really edify us. And that's why during Lent, we pull back from those things. We pull back to regain the right vision of things. And that's why we celebrate icons today too, because icons give us the right vision of things. Icons are filled with all kinds of wonderful secrets of beauty in its composition. It's not only the figures themselves or what they convey as far as the theology, the doctrine, but it's also the actual composition, the design, the proportion that's hidden in the way the icon is constructed, called composition. 
It follows what's called dynamic symmetry, the golden mean, certain proportions, certain geometric shapes that lead your eye and give a sense of balance and symmetry and beauty. They lead your eye through the picture plane in the way that your eye picks up the meaning, picks up what is important. For example, in icons, there's usually what we call a hieratic part and a narrative part. And usually it's the icon, in a sense, divided in half compositionally. The top part is generally the hieratic, in other words, the part that has to do with Christ. And, and that has a very static, hieratic posture to it. And below that is usually the narrative. It's like this world that is always in flux, always moving, because it's never perfected. It's always in the process of perfection. So the icon combines within itself the two realities of the heavenly reality, which is perfect, does not need to change, and the earthly reality, which is in constant flux and change, because it needs to be perfected. It's en route to its own perfection. So the icons through the composition actually convey that fundamental reality of life, of doctrine, of dogma, of heaven and earth having combined yet separate realities. Well, I want to thank you for listening. Try to look and take in icons. Try to see their meaning. Immerse yourself in their peace, in their mystery. That's what we do, especially today on this first Sunday of Lent. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit byzantinecatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Light of the East. We encourage you to tell a friend about Light of the East and to visit byzantinecatholic.com. Light of the East is produced by ABC Media. This is Father Donald Calloway from the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. As we are in our season of Lent, let us remember that the Lord's love for us is everlasting, that he offers to us a time of grace, a time of prayer, a time of penance, a time of almsgiving, so that we can have transformed hearts, so that we can grow in virtue. Read the scriptures, be a little more devoted in your prayer life, and watch the change and transformation that happens in your heart. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Wilcook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Or donate online on the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh!